Welcome to Right Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza, where the CME community hangs out. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and we're back after a summer break. I hope your summer was filled with joy and rest and connection with people that you love. I'm here today with Karen Overstreet, Vice President, Scientific and Educational Affairs for the Medical Learning Institute. Karen has a doctorate in education and has had a long career in print and virtual education, including medical education. We recorded this conversation in 2020. We talk about what you need to have staying power in this field, the CME, CPD field, the importance of being adaptable, a lesson that the world has had to learn and then some in the last 18 months, changing formats for CME, CPD delivery, and how to write in a way that is interactive and dynamic. Join us. Hello, welcome, Karen. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. You've had a long career in print and virtual education. Yes. And I know that you did your doctorate in education at Temple University. Maybe you can share with listeners how you found your way into education generally and what pulled you there. Well, I stumbled into medical education, medical communications, as so many of us do. I don't know anyone who went to college and intended to work in medical communications or medical education. We all sort of just stumble into this field. And it started for me when I was working on my master's degree in drug information in New York. And one of my professors ran a small medcoms company, and he knew I was a good writer from being in his class. And so he hired me to do some freelance work for him. And so I didn't even know the medical communications field existed. I had no idea I could apply my, my skills in writing, my light for writing with my scientific background, starting out as a pharmacist. Um, So it was just a natural marriage of those two things, those two parts of my skill set that I really enjoyed. And started out working in a couple of different medcoms companies back in the days when you could do continuing medical education and medcoms in the same company. Was um, 
fortunate enough to take a job in Philadelphia with the first med ed company that became triple accredited uh, back in the early 90s. I hate to say that. It makes me feel really, really old. Uh, but the first company that was ever accredited for physicians, nurses, and pharmacists. And about that time, I was offered the opportunity to get a doctoral degree in adult education and just jumped on it because I was jumping into CME with both feet without really knowing what I was getting into or what the company was getting into. That's so interesting. And I am conscious I did use the term long career in in education. <laughs> and that's not an age comment. I think that's, for me, that's more about staying power. And so a couple of things I want to follow up on there. One is, what are some of the skills that people who work in the medical education space need to sustain that staying power? And the other question is, you know, how you think adult education has changed over the last couple of decades. So maybe that's the place to start, you know, looking at your clinical background and how you brought that into a very theoretical world of, you know, education, looking at how that's changed and then what that tells us about what content creators need to create that sustaining power. Well, that's a great question, Alex, and and a very multifaceted one. The communications world and the education world have changed so much over the last few decades. I mean, just since you and I started in this business, there's been evolving regulations. The ACCME Mm -hmm. standards for commercial support have changed several times, and they're changing again. Um, The Pharma Code, the HHS OIG guidance, the AdvaMed Code, the Senate Finance Committee hearings on CME, all of these things have shaped what we do. The certification of CPD professionals, the certification of medical publication planners, both sides of the business have really evolved and best practices are changing all the time. The evidence base that underlies communication and education continues to evolve, just like the clinical evidence base for all of the different therapeutic areas that we work in. And it's challenging to be able to keep up with the science of medicine as well as the science of education and communication. It's Mm -hmm. growing all the time, but that's what's kept me in it. It's fascinating to be able to learn different things. A supervisor of mine years ago used to say this, and it used to drive me crazy, and now I quote her all the time. If we do today what we did yesterday, we'll have nothing to do tomorrow. And I, I think that's that's true. We live that every day. The world is changing so quickly. And the COVID pandemic is a perfect example. We have all had to adapt and come up with new strategies in the blink of an eye. So being nimble, planning ahead, looking for contingencies, all of those things are critically important as well mm-hmm. as the science and, um, and the evidence base that underlies what we do. Mm-hmm. So... One of the things I find interesting about that, which takes me to how adult education might have changed or might not have changed in the last couple of decades is, and you mentioned this, the science of learning, the science of education. What do you see as core elements of that science that haven't really changed, maybe tinkering at the edges? And what do you see as 
new pieces of knowledge that have been identified as part of, you know, the new science of learning. Another two-pronged question. (laughs) You're good at (laughs) that. For the price of one. Absolutely. When you really boil it down, I don't think there's so much new, but it's more applying what we know and coming back to the pandemic, being practical, being just in time, giving clinicians what they need to know and, and giving them expert guidance on how to use it. I think so much of education Mm -hmm. and communication, whether it's CME or a journal article or an advisory board, so much of that content historically has just been a parade of p-values and a data dump. Mm -hmm. And I think we're well beyond the point when that's enough. Clinicians are so busy keeping up with the literature in their field and practicing medicine in a different way than they did before the pandemic We've got to take it a step further and interpret the data for them. Give them expert advice on what to do with that data. You know, just knowing the results of a clinical trial aren't good enough. What do they mean? How do they use that for an individual patient? So that's one piece of it. And outcomes, of course, is another really important piece. And commercial supporters are getting more sophisticated about outcomes. Providers are getting more sophisticated about outcomes. and just being able to come up with creative ways to assess the effectiveness of what we're doing cost effectively mm-hmm. is, is really a challenge. You know, it's great to talk about patient level outcomes or population health outcomes, but very few people have the time and the resources and the money to put towards measuring those sorts of metrics. So how can we be more creative given time constraints, budget constraints, the, the realities that we're all mm-hmm. living in? What are some of the creative ways that you see people measuring outcomes, whether we're talking about CME or whether we're talking about other kind of educational vehicles? People, I I think a lot of times are still relying on pre and post tests, and that's fine. I think sometimes getting less volume of data through qualitative means can be more meaningful. Just talking to learners or readers or participants in an advisory board and asking them, what are you going to do differently based on the discussion we just had or based on what you just read? I think sometimes we get hung up on trying to assess a whole population of learners or readers or participants. And that gives some valuable information, of course, but there's a limit to that. So perhaps looking at a smaller subset of those learners or readers or participants and and really getting some meaty information about what surprised them from what they learned, what they're going to do differently, what questions Mm -hmm. they still have, and how are they going to address those? Mm -hmm. I don't think we do enough of that. Well, as a qualitative researcher, of course, that speaks to, (laughs) you know, one of my passions. You know, I see a little bit of that. Are you seeing some of that in the work? A little bit, a little bit, but not enough, I think. And one of the other things that you mentioned, print, creating content for print. Do you think that's something that, you know, sometimes there's a lot of angst within the CME world in particular around the value of print. And I'm wondering, given where we are, we're speaking, you know, in the fall of 2020, after six or seven months of living with coronavirus, what's your sense of 
how the vehicles, the formats for delivering education to clinicians might change and will print see a resurgence as a consequence? Interesting question, Alex. I think print will always have a place. Journals, some, some journals are hugely credible. And there are still a subset of clinicians that want to get that copy of the journal in the mail and flip through it when they have opportunities. But beyond that, so much content is available online now, even before Mm -hmm. it comes out in print. So when we say print, I always think about the online version of that as well as the old-fashioned paper that that comes in the mail. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those print publications are adding enhanced features. They're adding video elements, podcasts, webcasts, um, interactive posters, There's lots of creative things going on to make content that used to be static much more interactive to engage learners. And a lot of that has happened because of all of the conferences being canceled because of the pandemic. With oral sessions and poster sessions being done virtually, people are trying to find creative ways to make them more interactive, to give learners a chance to interact with the presenters Mm -hmm. in a new way. And I think that's exciting. I don't think that will go away even when the meetings business comes back, if it ever does. I I think the use of virtual technologies and being able to interact with content will change. And and that's a very positive thing. And presumably, this is something you're seeing not just in medical education, but across a whole range of medical communication types. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. With advisory boards being done virtually, Poster mm-hmm. presentations being done virtually with videos of the presenter and live Q&A sessions done online. It, it's really interesting to see how the industry has had to adapt very quickly. We talk about interactivity a lot. And I think the kind of default or what I hear is when we talk about interactivity, we very quickly move from print to multimedia forms and formats. But I'm a writer. And I know you're a writer too. And so I'm interested in how can we talk about writing in a way that builds that interactivity into the words themselves and the way that we use the words? Another great question, Alex. You're obviously very adept at interviewing people. Um, (laughs) I think it's an important consideration. And I think writers need to think in smaller chunks Those of us who started writing a long time ago are used to writing 5,000-page manuscripts that might have a few tables and a few figures. And we have to think a little bit differently. How can we get across the key messages in a way that will draw readers or learners in and keep their attention when they're so busy trying to keep up with the Mm -hmm. volume of stuff that they have to maintain to take care of their patients? So how, how can we be succinct? How can we be practical? How can we give them an opportunity to relate to a piece of content or only subsets of that content that are meaningful to them? Mm-hmm. So thinking about how to make the graphics more accessible. What can they download? What parts of, of something they're looking at on a screen can they blow up or download for their own use versus just reading a 10-page article? Agreed. I I think that succinctness, that brevity, shorter chunked material is increasingly key. And part of that is, I mean, obviously, 
the volume of work that clinicians do and the limited amount of time that they have to actually process that kind of information, but also just, I think there's something about neurobiology and neuroscience that suggests, you know, our attention spans are shorter and shorter. And this is going to take me into a rant about social media. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to go there, but I think thinking about that, it's, it's not just the structure of work in a healthcare context that's shifting. It's also, you know, there are some biological changes taking place in the human brain that make it incumbent on us to create content in a way that is is more kind of accessible. Yes, and digestible. You're absolutely right. Our attention spans are shorter. Technology in, in some ways is a wonderful thing. In some ways, mm -hmm. it's really a detriment to, to thinking and learning, but it is what it is. So mm -hmm. we have to continually think about being practical and relevant and helpful to learners when they've got so many opportunities and so many things pulling at their attention. Right. That practical piece. From your vantage point, how parsed out do you think education materials are for specific kinds of clinicians? So not just physicians, but also nurses, pharmacists. You're a pharmacist by trade and specialty and training. Can we do a better job of making sure that, or how can we do a better job, I think is a better question, of making sure that the content that we, we're delivering in education, whether we're talking about CME, whether we're talking about the wider education field, is just more targeted? What kind of audience analysis do we need to be doing in order to make sure that we're really getting to the people who, who need to use the material and we're showing them how to use the material? I think that's a really important point. And there's been a tendency, at least in the CE, CME space, and, and people tend to use CME broadly to mean mm -hmm. all healthcare professionals, to just certify activities for everybody without thinking about the needs of the community pharmacist, the clinical pharmacist, the nurse, the PA, the NP. Right. At some levels, they all need to know some of the basic things, but what they do with that information is very different. So just certifying an activity for oncology pharmacists without thinking about what are their needs that are different from the nurse or the physician, it's not going to be very effective. I think we've got to understand scope of practice. Mm -hmm. I think we need to have those different target audiences represented in the planning and the development of the content. And maybe there shouldn't be so much education that's multi-certified. Maybe we should go back to the days of designing education for physicians and, and nurses and, and advanced practice providers and pharmacists separately. I think it, it's dependent on the scope of practice and also the therapeutic area in areas where advanced practice providers can prescribe and they have more authority. Their educational needs are probably closer to mm -hmm. those of physicians, but in other areas that's not the case. And state by state, it's different too. So I think right. it comes down to really knowing the scope of practice of your target learners and getting them involved from the beginning in planning, whether it's an article or an advisory board or a CE activity. Mm -hmm. 
that's a really helpful way to think about this. You mentioned that, you know, we tend to use CME as a kind of shorthand for continuing education and for continuing professional development across different kinds of clinicians. And in that continuing professional development piece, I think one of the things that we've seen more and more in the last few months of pandemic is that there are so many other things that clinicians have to think about in the context of their work. I'm thinking of, for instance, stress and anxiety as a consequence of working in a pandemic. And the American Medical Association, for instance, has a, an initiative at the moment on building resilience, building resiliency amongst clinicians. From your vantage point, what are some of these wider professional development pieces that those of us who work in medical education, whether we're talking about CME, whether we're talking about continuing education more generally, and whether we're talking about the broader field of communications, what are some of the things we need to be thinking about to support clinicians that are not therapy-based, that are not disease-specific, that are not about workplace organization, but are about self-care and sustaining a career you know, over a lifetime. That's a, a really important point. And I've seen sustainability and self-care be addressed in a number of different organizations mm -hmm. from professional organizations that you and I may belong to, to clinician organizations. I think mm -hmm. that's key. Everyone is stressed. Everyone's having to do too much, taking care of kids at home while they're working, those sorts of things. So those are important. But also I think somehow helping people to become nimble, mm. to be comfortable with the fact that it's not going to go right all the time, that unforeseen things are going to happen, being comfortable in uncertainty. Mm -hmm. that, that's an uncomfortable place to be, but we're all living through it. And it's, it's uncomfortable for people who make life and death decisions or who make decisions that support those people. But this pandemic has all taught us that we have to be flexible. We have to be nimble. We will get through it. We have to have a plan B. And that's okay. We've got mm -hmm. to get comfortable with uncertainty and finding ways to, to be resilient and, and work through that uncertainty. How much do you think that you've mentioned the word nimble a few times? And I, it's a word I really like myself and links to the notion of pivoting and be able to you know, think on your feet and all those kinds of things. How much of a generational issue do you think that nimbleness is, you know, thinking about, you know, younger clinicians, uh, Gen Z, Gen Y, compared to, you know, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. Do you see generational differences in how clinicians manage and perceive uncertainty? I think there, there definitely is a trend. I think People who have grown up with technology and are used to getting the newest version all the time are easier to adapt to changes in technology. They're much more able to pick up a new teleconferencing system, a new video conferencing system easily, whereas someone who has only used one system, it's going to be a lot tougher. So yeah, I, I think there are definitely generational differences. And just that comfort level with technology and the changes in technology that are inevitable. So before we sort of wrap up, are there any other issues that, you know, we haven't covered that are really important to you in terms of thinking about creating education for clinicians? 
just one last thought and and coming from the perspective of someone who across my career has worked both on the medical communications part of the business, the industry, as well as the medical education side, we tend to think of them as two very discrete fields of work. And in, in some perspectives, they are. They have their own regulations, their own sets of rules and guidelines. But at the end of the day, the processes of creating content and trying to inform clinicians are really the same. Good writing is good writing, whether it's for an activity certified for credit or whether it's for a poster for a conference or an article going to the mm -hmm. Lancet. Good communication, good writing is the same, regardless of which playbook we're following. I love that. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with our listeners. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, Alex. One of the big takeaways from this conversation is the need to create content in smaller chunks. We've certainly been seeing that in many activities over the last couple of years, perhaps even longer. And the CME CPD field is beginning to talk a little more about micro learning, bite-sized learning snacks with very specific outcomes that have been used in other professional learning arenas for quite some time. There was a recent article in the Alliance Almanac that reviews some of the learning, micro-learning strategies that the education community mobilized in 2020. There's a link to that article in the show notes, as well as links to other articles in the peer-reviewed literature that scope out the potential for micro-learning in education for health professionals. Another takeaway is the importance of really tailoring education to meet the needs of particular specialties and clinical audiences in terms of how they do their work versus creating activities and simply certifying them for a range of clinicians. And we talked about the need for education to give some consideration to career sustainability and self-care. If you're interested in exploring self-care a little more, episode 12 in season one with Donna Gabriel focuses on addressing clinician burnout through mindfully designed education. And as a bonus for today's episode, a short downloadable breath awareness meditation to support your own self-care. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening, for connecting with Karen and me in this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and or leave a review on your podcast listening platform. That helps us deepen our connection even further. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza, where the CME community hangs out. <laughs>